0: Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by the forester for the state of Connecticut, Chris Martin. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, fall foliage season is getting underway in Connecticut and across the Northeast. Uh, Tell us what the forecast is for our parts this year.
1: Well, I think we're going to have a vivid year. It's been a great summer um, with plenty of rain and moderate temperatures. July was hot, but um, we've cooled off a bit now. And uh, I think the stage is set for a great foliage season.
0: What ingredients in particular go into making it a good
1: foliage season? There's really three main ingredients. Uh, one is the number of daylight hours, which is consistent year to year. Uh, the other, precipitation during the spring and summer. Um, we want a well-watered trees, uh, good soil moisture to help the trees grow so they go into the fall healthy. And then finally is our overnight temperatures in September, which really this time of year is the greatest variable, which really times out when exactly we'll hit peak foliage in October. And what you want is those kind of cool nights, right? Yeah, evenings, overnight temperatures in the 40s are ideal.
0: What does that trigger within trees?
1: So the daylight hours, the shortening triggers the trees to shut down. um, But as the temperatures drop, it really affects the flow of nutrients up and down the trees and it closes down the trees quicker which leaves the colors um out in the leaves more pronounced what determines what type of colors you see in leaves well there are different pigments and uh, different chemical compounds and i won't get into the scientific names however different tree species have uh, more prominent different chemical compounds or pigments and that's why uh, sugar maples uh, the classic brilliant orange uh, Ash, tulip poplar turn yellow, hickory is also yellow, and then our oaks turn more of a purpley, brownish-orange type thing.
0: Are some trees more quick to turn than others?
1: They are. Some trees that are under stress, uh, whether it be some damage or age or disease, will turn earlier, or if they're on growing sites such as shallow soils or overly wet soils, our wetlands will turn, uh, the red maple swamps will turn before the upland areas. And then um, trees that are in really healthy, uh, deep, loamy soils, they'll be the very last to change in a certain Pacific area.
0: We're already seeing a little color out there.
1: Walk us through when peak will be. Peak does go north to south, and we usually like to say uh, Columbus Day weekend, mid-October-ish, is when we really will start to see those greatest colors in our higher elevations in northeastern and northwestern Connecticut. Uh, From there, we move southward into the Hartford area, about a week or so after columbus day and then our very last area in connecticut typically um, lower middlesex county essex the mouth of the connecticut river and that is um, first second week of november Um, you know connecticut i think stands out amongst other states because of that that graduation it's gradual and our tree diversity is one of the greatest in new england states. so we have in my mind more colors, more diversity, and a longer foliage season because of that. I
0: understand the phone has already been ringing off the hook with people (laughs) wanting to know when is peak going to occur and where should I go?
1: Many folks think the state forester is the foliage czar and can tell you exactly when and where to be. Um, (laughs) So most people do understand there's variability place to place and year to year. Uh, But that said, we take calls at at our agency from across the world. Uh, artists from Italy, France come, uh, California. You know, p- People don't realize—well, I do. Many people realize the beauty of Connecticut. But when you live here all the time, you kind of see it all the time, it gets a little dull. When you grow up in an area that's devoid of the ver- variety of trees we have, the foliage season is really a huge attraction for tourism. You know, I may
0: be asking you to divulge a secret, but do you have a favorite place for foliage in Connecticut?
1: That is a tough question. We have— um, you know, for me personally, I like to see vistas and I like to see the landscape. So, high precipices that have views of our valleys and our farms and our diversified woodlands are some of my favorites. So, we actually have um, some recommended hiking uh, locations on our website under Fall Foliage. We have several web pages devoted to that with recommended hikes and drives and specific locations where you can take a, your family out and really have a delightful weekend how good a foliage season was it last year last year was good um we had uh very similar to this year actually we had a great setup with uh wetter summer and spring and then the temperatures did finally cool off it took a little bit longer towards the end of september um and i think we were a little bit later last year than normal but you know well within the realm of normalcy
0: how long
1: do the leaves stay on the trees and what dictates that so yeah, that's a great question because, um, and certainly in the news lately, we've heard all about the terrible weather in the southeast of the Bahamas. We do are in hurricane season, and so when we as we reach that peak color, and as the leaves are you know at their brightest, are also the most vulnerable to falling off because of heavy rain and wind, and it doesn't take much for us to have you know all kinds of leaves, all kinds of colors, and then the very next day. Look like end of November. They can all fall down at once. So um, wind, rain, and then the uh, if we get a really really hard frost, if it gets really cold, they'll they'll shrivel up a little bit and then fall off more quickly. So essentially, enjoy it while you can. Make the most of it.
0: Yes. Are there any sort of
1: diseases or critters that affect the foliage? Oh, there's a variety, um, and you know because our tree diversity is so. Um, wide with all kinds of different species. There's different things out there that affect trees year to year. And some of our native insects and diseases, uh, leaf tar spot. You know, they're they're here and there. They do show up, uh, but the trees and those things have kind of lived, learned to live together, and so they usually don't have a big impact. Um, we do, however, also have some invasive species uh, that have impacted our forests uh, in a big way. Um, gypsy moth caterpillar last few years, mostly in eastern Connecticut and. Uh, New London, and then Tolland County in particular. Uh, but then also um, we have the emerald ash borer affecting ash trees, and that is making a eastward march from western Connecticut to eastern Connecticut.
0: Now with the gypsy moths, I understand the activity has died down a bit, but in some areas the damage has been done.
1: Yeah, we recently have come out of a very large infestation. About every 10 years or so, Connecticut seems to be impacted Uh, in a big way. And we uh, had three years of spring drought, which really um, enabled the caterpillar populations to grow in number tremendously. Um, Thankfully, that has ended. We've had two wet springs, so they have uh, succumbed to the uh, mamanga fungus, which is a soil fungus. So this past two years, we've had very little new feeding activity. However, um, as you noted, we do have mortality. Some dead trees from the... significant defoliation and several years of it coupled with drought. And so there are pockets of mostly oak and predominantly white oak that people are seeing along their roadsides, in their backyards um, that are uh, you know posing a risk for us. And um, our agency, DEEP, has uh, been very aggressive, uh, taking down those trees in public areas where people like to congregate, parking areas, picnic grounds. Uh, and whatnot and then uh, we knew we do know that uh, landowners homeowners in particular many have been hit hard in the pocketbook um, because these things are often big and when you take a tree down around houses and garages and driveways and whatnot you got to be very careful and often requires an expert to uh, provide that service how
0: does the gypsy moth kill the trees it just going after the leaves or does it go after the the wood as well
1: so it definitely is a um a defoliator which is a leaf eater and the leaves on a tree are critical to the tree's sustenance. I mean, that is basically the mouth parts of the tree. It takes in the nutrients, it processes them, you know, provides carbohydrates and all kinds of things for the tree to grow. Uh, but when you take down those leaves, you remove them during the growing season in particular, you're basically starving the tree. And so, you know, trees will survive one year, maybe two, um, as long as they can refoliate and get nutrients and water again, but uh, repeated defoliation year after year coupled with drought. And the fact that our trees are older, they're not quite as spry as they used to be, um, You know, they're, they're tired and they just can't handle it. We had similar outbreaks uh, in the 1980s, generally speaking, when our forest was younger and our forest was more resilient back then. Uh, And the mortality, therefore, was much less than what we're seeing today.
0: Now, you also mentioned the emerald ash borer, which is newer to Connecticut. Uh, What does that do?
1: Yeah, so this guy showed up in 2014, um, Prospect, Connecticut, the epicenter. um, And we believe it probably came in some wood pallet material uh, from Asia, which uh, many of our invasive species originate from. That has since spread to most all of Connecticut. Uh, all counties have it. Uh, it takes about three to five years for people actually to realize it's a around because it's such a very small, boring beetle. Uh, when you see one, though, emerald green, it really stands out. Uh, but um, they grow in number quickly, and they are targeted towards ash. Uh, they basically uh, cut the blood flow off of the tree by boring in just below the cambium, uh, near the hardwood, where all those nutrients flow up and down the stem of the tree, basically strangulating the tree through their gathering. Uh and so the ash trees um, are succumbing. They're they're dead along the roadsides, and again in people's backyards and in the woods, and uh, causing a, a lot of a lot of concern for people. Is there anything we can do to to fight these critters? There is, and um, and in fact, the a uh, lot of strategies out there, especially for municipalities are to manage the death of these ash trees in particular, and also oak, uh, where you can treat trees um, to kill the kill the emerald ash borer and gypsy moth, and to kind of slow down that death rate um, over time. And that's really important for towns, and even for um, folks with many trees, for their cash flow. You know, the, taking all these trees down at once and removing them is very, very expensive. So... If you have a legacy tree, um, you can treat them. Uh, it does require a licensed arborist with a pesticides applicator um, to provide the chemicals to do that properly and safely. Uh, There's certain times of year when it can be done and when it shouldn't be done because we also have other concerns for pollination. Uh, but uh, that can be successfully uh, treated without any harm to the environment and keep those trees alive. Um, and probably every two years or so that treatment has to take place.
0: You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to state forester Chris Martin. I know when we were trying to prevent the emerald ash borer from coming to Connecticut, not importing out-of-state firewood was
1: important. Is that still important? It is. It is. And, you know, I will say that we were successful uh, slowing down the spread of emerald ash borer and allowing folks to become educated and prepared. Um, It was basically— found on the uh, western side of the Hudson River at a KOA campground about three or four years prior to it getting into Connecticut. And, in fact, when it hit Connecticut, it wasn't because of a westward migration. It was a hop, skip, and a jump from somewhere else that showed up in Prospect and then worked west and east from Prospect. Uh, We have another uh, very scary critter in Worcester, Massachusetts, the Asian longhorn beetle, And that helped us promulgate uh, firewood regulations in Connecticut, where bringing in out-of-state firewood does require a permit. Now, let me just say that that permit is no cost. Uh, We want to know about firewood coming into Connecticut. Therefore, we welcome people to let us know, and we make it easy. Um, And it's not that it's a straight-out prohibition, but anything that's coming from an area near Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, really runs the risk of carrying that beetle into Connecticut. And the Asian longhorn beetle... Unlike gypsy moth, unlike emerald ash borer, has a voracious appetite for a wide variety of tree species. And so, as we mentioned before, our forests are very diverse. And so this guy is really bad news for Connecticut. And the sooner we find it, if it does show up in Connecticut, the better off we'll be. The one benefit of Asian longhorn beetle, it's a big, charismatic beetle, doesn't move well on its own. So it can be contained, and in other parts of the country has been successfully eradicated.
0: You know, driving around Connecticut, you see so many streets named after elm and chestnut and other trees that really don't thrive in this part of the country anymore. Walk us through the the history of what happened to some of those.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we, we talk about these invasive critters like it's something new that's never happened before. And in fact, um, we've been dealing with it since the early 1900s and maybe even before that. But it was... These things have come in from global trade and uh, global travel. Uh, the Dutch elm disease uh, back in the 30s and 20s came in and really just devastated our, our, our forest and also a lot of our um, urban areas because the, the elm tree, uh, because of its silhouette and growth pattern, is ideal tree for urban settings. It's tall, it uh, clears the utility lines, and has a very nice flowering uh, canopy, which really provides cooling and nice shade for our summer heat. Um, that has since succumbed, there are there are elms still around, but they are also treated annually or very periodically to keep the Dutch elm disease at bay. Uh, the other sad story is the chestnut tree, the chestnut tree blight, um, which occurred which chestnuts used to make up the majority tree species in Connecticut and was a founding, uh, lumber species for many of our buildings, um, back in the 17, 1800s. So in fact, there's many barns and older industrial buildings that have these huge, you know, monstrous chestnut beams. And they're such rugged, strong buildings that they've stood all this time, stand at this test of time. And, uh, it's sad to see that go, you know, those, those trees provided, um, unique wildlife habitat and food with the mast and basically have been replaced with oak trees, which provide similar benefits.
0: Now, chestnut trees will still grow; they just don't grow very big, right?
1: Yeah, many people will will see them in the woods or in even their their woodland uh, backyard edges where they sprout up year after year, and they'll get maybe four six inches in diameter. But then they'll all of a sudden see the the stem of it start to blister with orange and whatnot, and basically that's just the uh, blight coming in and, and hammering the tree.
0: What can the average person do to help with with tree health, maybe in their yard or, you know, across Connecticut?
1: Well, you know, I think first thing is to be informed. Um, know the tree species in your backyard. Become familiar with them. Um, and uh, be an advocate for, uh, for tree health and tree planting and uh, for healthy forests. And it's a variety of opportunities, be a land trust, local conservation league, um, even being uh, friends of a state forest. You know, there's all kinds of opportunity for people to uh, engage and learn more about trees. Informed public is probably our best advocate uh, because they can see things early. Um, you know, By the way, most of these early pest detections have occurred not by foresters or pathologists, entomologists, scientific folks. It's the regular folks that are just like curious and interested in the health of their trees, and they see something not right, they say something. And uh, it's a huge benefit for early detection. In terms of tree care, what should someone look for
0: in in someone who's going to be taking down or trimming a tree? I'm guessing not the person who shows up at your front door unsolicited with a ladder.
1: (laughs) So there's a lot of folks out there that want to get into the tree business. And there's a lot of people that need tree service. Uh, So with that comes some risk of some, you know, maybe not so best business practices. But homeowners and property owners can protect themselves uh, by soliciting um, service from more than one vendor, uh, getting references, always have a written quote and details on the work that's prescribed. The last thing a homeowner wants or anybody wants is a surprise. And another consideration is when uh, people come onto your property, uh, make sure they're insured, But then also be aware of where they're going to go with the equipment. Are there underground hazards, whether it be utility lines or a septic tank? These things really need to be made known to the contractor so you don't end up having ancillary issues along with the tree being taken down.
0: I know cities and towns have tree wardens in some cases.
1: Do they interface at all with you? So, yes, all the time. And I, I will just say that our tree wardens... Um, these days are some of the best folks on the ground, town by town, that know about tree health. Uh, recently, last few years ago, the legislature passed a new law that requires tree wardens to be qualified. Although many knew their business, um, there was you know people coming and going all the time. Uh, now the tree wardens have to be qualified. And the University of Connecticut Extension Service provides that training on behalf of the Commissioner of DEEP to get those folks um, fully trained and ready for their jobs. So your tree warden in your town knows the trees, knows the health, and they're a great go-to resource for, for trees that are within the municipal right-of-way. Uh, many folks think the tree warden in town can take care of their private trees. Not the case. Uh, but certainly trees in parks, around schools, and then within that right-of-way, which does vary on your town roads from 10 to 15 feet from the curb – Inland, on near grass or tr- or wooded area to the center line of the road, so there's a lot of variability, so it's always good to check with the tree warden if you have a problem tree near the near the road.
0: As you noted, because we live in Connecticut and we see lots of trees every day, we might not think of this, but how forested a state are we compared to others? So,
1: and this statistic surprises people because we are very heavily developed as a, as a state. Um, but if you look at the map of the United States, Connecticut ranks um, in the top 10 for number of trees per acre and as far as canopy coverage goes. Um, I like to say that Connecticut residents are forest dwellers <laughs> and people you know, scratch their head, what does that mean? Well, if you look out your window or you just step out your backyard, you cannot help but see a tree. We live underneath a forest of trees, whether it be a suburban, urban or rural area. Um, and that really poses Connecticut, you know, unlike other states and that are envious of us, like the Midwest and even the West Coast, you know, it's, it's certainly in the Southeast United States, because we have such a great tree canopy. And oftentimes people visit Connecticut from those areas and they feel kind of claustrophobic because just like there's trees like everywhere, all above me, all around me. And don't you feel like closed in? And of course, here we celebrate that.
0: I'm guessing we probably have more trees now than we did at other times during our history when they were used more for, for burning and building.
1: Oh, we do. Um, in fact, we hit a low point in the mid-1800s, early 1800s, where about maybe 20%, 30% of the state had trees. Uh, we're now basically we're 100% covered, and our core forest areas represent maybe 50%, 58%. Um, but we were, uh, we were missing a lot of trees back in the mid-1800s because of agricultural clearing and charcoal making. And that actually brought about um, a lot of the uh, laws in Connecticut that were kind of first in the nation, such as tree wardens, um, arborist registrations and licensing, uh, consumer protection based upon tree care. Um, really, Connecticut led that, led that front early on. And because of that, we, I think we have great qualified folks today, and we have a pretty healthy forest.
0: Do trees play a role in helping to regulate the, the climate and the environment? They do
1: in a big, big way, both on a very small scale and a large scale. I like to say trees are our world's lungs. They take in carbon dioxide, they store it in, in wood, and they expire transpire oxygen, which we need. So trees and humans, we have kind of a symbiotic relationship. Um, on the micro scale... Um, our heating and cooling are greatly influenced by trees, and particularly in the summer, the shading of trees around buildings can significantly reduce your energy costs. Also, you know, getting back to the uh, carbon component of trees, we do a great job in Connecticut in locking up carbon long-term by harvesting our saw logs, um, trees when they're mature, and making usable forest products out of them, whether it be cabinetry, flooring, furniture. And that basically removes a carbon piece from the woods, locks it up into a usable product for a long, long period of time. And then where that tree was, more trees grow. And so we have even more carbon being sequestered because of the regeneration. And most of that happens in Connecticut naturally. It does
0: seem we have kind of a love-hate relationship, though. I think back to the october nor'easter in 2011 when... The trees were falling down all over the place.
1: Well, yeah, and and so yeah, 2011 was a pretty tough year. Um, Superstorm Sandy too. We had two events basically blackened Connecticut for three to four weeks. Um, in many people's minds, that does seem like yesterday. Uh, and that is that's reflective of our age of our forests in Connecticut. We we have an overabundance of big, yeah, beautiful trees. Um, but as in most things in, in biological cycles, everything comes to the end stage of their life. And so, you know, when trees reach 100, 125, 150 years, which is reflective back to our mid-1800s when we were mostly lost less of trees. Now we have a lot of trees, similar in age class. We are kind of vulnerable. And um, it does show when we have catastrophic weather events. Uh, the, you know, the, the solution to that, I think, is forest management and sustainable, responsible forest management. We can keep a diversity of trees, different age classes that can respond to these type of weather events that seem to be a little more dramatic than they used to be years ago.
0: He is state forester Chris Martin. Thanks so much for joining us this morning.
1: Oh, it's a great time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend.
1: Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio.